Good morning and welcome to the Indoor Environment Show, Global Research to Action. I'm Bob Krell, um, your host and co-hosting along with me is Don Weeks. Uh, Don Weeks is the president of the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance and I'm the publisher and founder of Healthy Indoors Magazine. So thank you so very much for joining us. We're happy to have you here today. How are you, Don? Good, Bob. How are you doing? You know, another another fine day, and we're yes. on a Thursday for a change. We've we've been on different days with the show, uh, with this monthly broadcast. Uh, I'd like to point out right now that this this uh, program is a uh, collaborative effort between ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, and the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance. Uh, both organizations came together and partnered with us at Healthy Indoors to uh, create this program. So we're really happy that you're joining us today. So today's program is fantastic, right? We're um, uh, very timely topic. Very timely topic. We're um, we're looking forward to uh, both of our guests joining us today um, from uh, New Jersey and North Carolina. I'll introduce them both. Uh, we have Dr. Charles Weschler. He's uh, an adjunct professor at the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the School of Public Health at Rutgers University. Welcome, Charlie. How are you? I'm fine. And also, um, Dr. Glenn Morrison, he's a professor uh, of environmental sciences and engineering at the University of North Carolina. Thanks for having us. I'd like, 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 like to have you guys here. So um, our, I guess the first question is, uh, I know you're, you're mentioning, Glenn, that we have uh, an audio issue here. Hi, Bob. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm getting sure. a lot of feedback on my end with the duplicate voice. Is it on anybody else's? Uh, no, let me just see if I can edit your mic settings and fix that for you. Uh, how's that? That no, fix it for you? I'm still hearing it from like five seconds ago. Okay. Um, do you have another window open uh, other than just this uh, StreamYard? Make sure you don't have any other windows open with the broadcast. Okay. Um, yeah, not really sure how we can address that. I, there is time. another window open on here. I'm not sure how to remove it. Okay. Yeah. You'll need, you'll need, yeah. If you can close the other window and just stay in StreamYard, that would, that would fix that. Okay. Well, and, and well that's, part, that's, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, Charlie, that's part of live broadcast. So here, here, here we are. Um, I've, left, I've lost my tag team partner. Uh, that's we'll right. That's here. right. There he is. Uh, outstanding. Uh, haven't resolved it. So, not sure. Okay, well, um, can we can we push forward uh, with it? I'm going to let you guys go for a second. I'm going to actually just get back on. Okay, that'd be fine. I, I don't know why I'm getting this. You uh, do want to try to reboot? Come back I don't in know how to get rid of the window. Um, okay, you can drop out and come back in. We'll bring you back. All right, so, Don, I'll let you, I'll let you take it away with the first question for Charlie. <laughs> Yeah. Hello, Charlie. How are you today? I'm fine, Don. So I was wondering, uh, you know, I, I, I recognize, of course, that you worked at Bell Laboratories for a number of years from 1975 to 2001. And then you became an adjunct professor at Rutgers University uh, in their Environmental Occupational Health Sciences Institute. Can, can you kind of give us an, a, a, a feel for what you were thinking in terms of making that type of change? What prompted you to do so? 
<laughs> well, I, I started at Bell Labs uh, in 1975 after a postdoc at Northwestern. And uh, my, my background is chemistry. My, uh, my undergrad degree, my PhD, my postdoc were all in chemistry departments. Um, when I started Bell Labs in 75, I was in the basic research group in uh, physical sciences and uh, surrounded by different types of chemists. Uh, but the overarching uh, reason that we existed was, excuse me, um, was to address chemically related problems in the Bell system. This was when the Bell system was integrated. Uh, you had a manufacturing arm, you had the telephone switching offices, you had long distance. And uh, Bell Labs addressed problems that were relevant to, to each of those those parts of the of the Bell system, um, it was a it was a terrific place to work, and I was surrounded by uh, incredibly bright people, and I could walk down the hall and ask questions about polymers or about radicals or about a new instrumental technique. It was very stimulating. In 1984, the Bell system was broken up. It was a monopoly, and the uh, Antitrust law was brought to bear against Ma Bell, and it, it was broken up into different companies. And I went with that part of Bell Labs that served the operating companies at the time, Seven Baby Bells. Those Seven Baby Bells uh, eventually started competing with one another and, and aggregating to some extent. And as that occurred, it really limited the type of research we could do. By, uh, by 2001, we just weren't able to look at some of the big problems we had been able to examine uh, back when I started at Bell Labs in 75. Uh, Paul Leoy was uh, active at, at Rutgers. It was UMDNJ at the time. And uh, he, he had started an exposure science program at Eoshi. And uh, he invited me to uh, join that exposure science program. And at the same time, Oli Fonger in Denmark invited me to come to DTU as a visiting professor. So that was the impetus to say goodbye to Bell Labs and to uh, take up life as an academic at Rutgers and at Technical University of Denmark. Great. Uh, did your interest uh, in uh, VOCs and other types of uh, indoor chemistry also change at that time as well? Not really, Don. Okay. Um, my, my interest at Bell Labs had been fairly broad. It was everything from water-soluble salts associated with airborne particles to semi-volatile organic compounds that um, were present in indoor air that were used as additives in, in polymers uh, to... Um, to highly reactive compounds that might be generated under certain circumstances indoors. It was actually at Bell Labs that I got interested in ozone chemistry mm. because ozone was causing cracking in some of the insulation at telephone switching offices. And uh, people were certainly aware that ozone was a problem outdoors in terms of rubber insulation, but they had not fully appreciated that indoor ozone levels could reach concentrations that would cause cracking in insulation indoors. Uh, so that was my that was my introduction to indoor ozone. So at that point at Bell Labs though, you, you were more um, 
focused on on, on effects on equipment, right? And in, in the from an environmental standpoint, as opposed to the occupants. Absolutely correct, Bob. We were uh, the research was driven by failures in telephone switching equipment, specifically failures that occurred indoors in telephone switching offices across the country. And because it was one system in 1975, uh, what we did had an impact on roughly 14,000 telephone switching offices. If we could identify a problem, um, that had economic consequences. So um, that was a, a nice support for the research our group was doing. So that ended up being a paradigm shift, obviously, as you as your career progressed forward and you ended up dealing more with, with the occupant side, because now you're dealing with occupational health and, and those aspects. Yes, but but the important thing to realize is that the underlying chemistry is the same. Whether we're talking about exposure to telephone switching equipment or exposure to the building occupants, the chemistry that occurs is the same chemistry. So, so that didn't change. The, the interest in the occupants, I, I, I think we're, we're all naturally interested in what happens to us indoors. We all spend a substantial amount of time indoors. So in those days at Bell Labs, when the focus was equipment, I certainly was thinking about the impact of the same chemistry on us, the occupants. But that became more legitimate, if you will, when I transferred to academia. Makes sense. So, uh, Glenn, we have you in now. I'm hoping your audio is resolved. Yep, yep. It's all resolved. Perfect. Okay. I, I see you took your headset off. So, it's, you well, know, I put that's counterintuitive. Okay, there he goes. It's counterintuitive sometimes. So, um, Don, so Glenn, you, you, can, you can now speak for the next five minutes. Yeah, there you go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that, that, and that's that brings up a very good point. While you were uh, you were away, Glenn, I I, I pressed uh, Charlie on how do you get started in this business, and so I'll give you an opportunity as well to tell how did you develop your interest in indoor air quality? What what, what kind of uh, schooling and, and what type of, of physicians did you have that might uh, might have got you into the position where you where you are today where you're spending a great deal of time on indoor air quality in your case clothing and and its uh, its uh, exposures what what prompted you to get involved with this this field uh so i actually started out as a chemical engineer i was working uh at a sort of a boutique kind of uh catalyst company in the san francisco bay area um, working on environmental solutions using catalysis. And so it was very uh, chemical engineering um, process oriented. And um, uh, a lot of what we did was uh, essentially what we think of now, I think of a surface chemistry, the chemistry taking place on catalysts and how we can uh, design that so that we can get the best results and, and improve the uh, environment in a lot of ways like air pollution control. Um, over during that time, I, I was very interested in the uh, sort of nerdy side of it, but I also thought I could do more with what I was uh, learning, and uh, I decided to go back to school. Uh, and while I was there, I met Bill Nazaroff, who was you know teaching courses on indoor air quality and was already you know had uh, quite a reputation for uh, the work he was doing there. And I, it was just fascinating that there was so much chemical engineering that could be applied to the indoor environment and, um, and to, to learn things that hadn't been learned before. And this was about the point that I became familiar with Charlie's work. Charlie had been at um, Berkeley and done some uh, fascinating experiments with ozone and carpet. 
And that right there was this, the start of my, I guess, my real work on indoor uh, research and in indoor air pollution was to follow up on that work and then um, take, take it where I uh, wanted to go. So um, surface chemistry, ozone, uh, and this, of course, uh, has morphed over time into uh, all kinds of uh, interests in indoor air quality. Of course, it's driven to some degree, driven by human exposure and how this chemistry affects us. But I think, uh, to be honest, a lot of my personal interest comes from the nerdy interest in trying to just discover what's happening there, what's just happening on surfaces, what's, how, how do chemicals move through the environment, how do they move into us. Um, that is as important to me as, you know, the fact that it does affect us. What, what's fascinating about this, and uh, Charlie and I spoke about this in the pre-show, is that we um, sometimes intentionally affect the indoor chemistry, right, by some of the purported uh, processes for cleaning the air that are, you know, used in, uh, you know, being offered by various providers and, you know, not necessarily uh, uh, without consequence, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, nearly every action we take indoors is affecting the chemistry in one way or another. Okay, maybe not walking across the room, but you open a window, you've completely changed the chemistry indoors, especially if you're drawing, if you're in a polluted area, bringing in all these pollutants that can react with things. If you change the thermostat, you're changing the way that chemicals partition from surfaces. There's so many things that you, that we do, the choices we make, the products we decide to bring into our homes, or perhaps as we've discussed in the previous um, uh, time I was on the show, um, products, uh, choosing products to clean the air that maybe don't do the, do what we think they, they should be doing. Um, so there's, we are personally responsible for a great deal of chemistry taking place around us. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add to Glenn's comment that even walking across the room, yeah. we can impact the chemistry because we resuspend particles as we walk. And if you increase the particle concentration, you change the partitioning of chemicals between the air and, and surfaces. So even what seems relatively innocuous, something that affects, would have a small effect, even, even that can impact yeah. indoor chemistry. So you mentioned uh, there was some work that uh, you did, Glenn, uh, following up on what Charlie was doing in regards to carpets and uh, was it ozone or other chemicals involved? Ozone. Can you, ozone? Can you uh, can talk a little bit about that one? Sure, uh, I'll talk about it more broadly. That you know, ozone loves to react with lots of things, but in particular, it likes to react with molecules that have what double bonds in them. They're called unsaturated organic compounds. And it turns out that carpet just ha happens to have um, a, a, a thin coating of all the of of oils, and the oils are derived from many sources but some of them are vegetable based and those oils it's used for spinning and in processing and those oils react with ozone but also molecules deposit on carpet all the time from dust from cooking from all these things and so carpet is quite reactive with ozone and when ozone reacts with the molecules that are deposited on or present on the carpets um, they can generate new compounds, they become oxidized, they can volatilize into the air as what are called carbonyl compounds, um, some of which you can even um, detect, you can even smell. So it changes the chemistry of the environment. But broadly, this is true of pretty much all surfaces um, indoors that they um, 
either come with or can accumulate um, uh, a coating of molecules that do react with ozone. And Charlie can talk more about what uh, kinds of things and what, what are important there, what kinds of things are coding services. So go for it, Charlie. <laughs> well, well, first, I'll, uh, I'll refer to some additional work that Glenn has done related to these common cooking oils, these vegetable oils. Glenn has uh, two very nice papers uh, in the literature in which he measured the reactivity of different indoor surfaces in representative homes um, to ozone. So he, he had a flow reactor and passed ozone over those surfaces and, and measured chemicals that, that came out. And those papers demonstrate very nicely that kitchen surfaces tend to be contaminated with the oils we use for cooking. That's not so surprising, uh, but I, the papers really illustrate just how substantial the resulting chemistry can be because you might have some uh, a thin film of olive oil on your kitchen counter and olive oil contains oleic acid, which has this unsaturated bond and ozone reacts with this constituent of olive oil to give us a carbonyl called nonanal, and at high enough concentrations, nonanal can be irritating. So, um, so Glenn has not only looked at this this chemistry on carpets; he has also looked at this chemistry on on kitchen countertops and uh, and walls and floors. And uh, I I think it's some very important work. Um, more broadly speaking, something we came to appreciate in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, was that human beings contribute their skin flakes and skin oil to indoor environments. Um, we're all familiar with fingerprints. We know that fingerprints can be used forensically to identify who might have been present at the site of a crime. Well, the fingerprint is just a human being leaving skin oils on a surface. In this case, the oils associated with the tips of our fingers. Um, any surface we contact, we leave our skin oils behind. So indoor surfaces uh, contain human skin oils simply because we sit on chairs and we touch surfaces and, uh, and uh, other contact activity. But we also shed our skin at a remarkably fast rate. Uh, typical adult completely changes his skin or her skin over roughly a four to six week period. Um, I forget the exact number of skin flakes we shed per hour, but it's, it's staggering. So if you look at indoor dust in a home or an office that has occupants, you'll find skin flakes. And those skin flakes contain skin oils. And there's a chemical in the skin oil uh, and in the skin flake called squalene. Uh, some of you have seen squalene listed on the label of, uh, of skin creams. Uh, squalene contains six double bonds. It reacts with ozone very fast. And it's, it's about 10% of our skin oil by weight. So an indoor environment might start with surfaces that are different from one another, that are chemically different. The surface of a window is different from the surface of a carpet chemically. Uh, but over time, these surfaces soil. They soil because particles in the air deposit on the surfaces. They soil be because organic compounds in the air sorb to the surfaces. And this soiling over time 
makes the indoor surfaces more and more similar to one another. And uh, part of that similarity are the skin flakes and skin oil. And these products of ozone squalene chemistry can be observed in almost any indoor environment that's occupied by humans. And is there a practical issue? You mentioned uh, that uh, that there's an irritant that's that's uh, that comes about due to these interactions. What would someone who is interested in, in avoiding being irritated? What would they have to do in order to uh, you know to, to deal with the situation like that? I don't see, for example, that we're always going to be able to clean up every bit of uh, oils that might be uh, used in cooking and things of that nature. But perhaps you have some other ideas of how we can deal with this this, yeah. this potential problem. Yes, I'll start on this and I'll ask Glenn to follow. Um, I'll, I'll mention just two other products that, that are known irritants. Anytime ozone reacts with a chemical that has a double bond at the end of the molecule, you make formaldehyde. And I think most people in the audience appreciate that formaldehyde is something we want to avoid in high concentrations. It's an irritant. Um, and then when ozone reacts with squalene, one of the products is a dicarbonyl called 4-OPA. I won't go into the chemistry, but some nice work at, at um, NIOSH has shown that 4-OPA is an irritant at high enough concentrations. So when you have a highly occupied indoor environment, consider an aircraft cabin, where you also frequently have elevated ozone, you can get elevated concentrations of this irritant, 4-OPA, because of the chemistry. So how do we how do we shut down this chemistry? How do we avoid the formation of these irritants? Um, as you said, Don, it's impractical to try and clean indoor environments to the extent that you shut down the chemistry. The, uh, the most practical step is try to limit ozone concentrations indoors. Try to limit outdoor to indoor transport of ozone when the outdoor concentrations are high. And there are several ways this can be done. One of them, if you have a mechanically ventilated building, is to use charcoal filters to take ozone out of the ventilation air. Um, at this point, I'll hand it over to Glenn for further comments. Okay. Um, I, I, that's, Charlie's right. The, the, this, we're not going to be able to limit chemistry associated with our effluents very much. I mean, because we are what we are. And, um, and we're going to cook indoors. And there's all these things that we're going to do um, that uh, influence the surface coatings indoors. And really, the actor here that we can deal with potentially is ozone. As you said, in commercial buildings, which often have mechanically ventilated systems, we might be able to deal with that with uh, charcoal um, in some cases. It's much harder in a lot of uh, residential environments to do that and impractical, perhaps. Um, and so to some degree, the, the way to deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis is the same kind of thing that you might do with, um, uh, with uh, smoke from a fire. You can either have uh, standalone filters that also have activated carbon in them, or you can uh, basically just try to limit the amount of outdoor air coming in on a day that has a lot of ozone. Bigger picture, we need to lower ozone concentrations outdoors. That's, you know, that's the ozone by itself is a problem. And so it, it, there are, um, it, it's, it's a criteria pollutant that has adverse health effects. Um, and so if we can reduce everybody's exposure to ozone and ozone byproducts, um, and Charlie can jump in there if he wants to, um, that combination 
um, we probably will see a, so a large, uh, an effect at a more uh, sort of a, a, a global scale in terms of improved health. Um, so I, I didn't really add a whole lot in terms of like practical suggestions there, but at the, the commercial level, yes, we could put in activated carbon. At home level, maybe in some cases, um, but uh, it's, a, it's not as easy to deal with at um, the residential level. Yeah. Glenn has actually investigated passive techniques yeah. to remove ozone indoors. He's done that at UT Austin with uh, colleagues, Rich Corsi and some of the graduate students there. Um, Glenn might like to say more about. Well, I can. Yeah, I wasn't going to suggest this because it's not necessarily something that's commercial. But but there are materials that passively remove ozone without generating byproducts. And a lot of these things are just a, they're available, I guess. They are commercially available. It's not promoted for that. But uh, things that are more um, kind of a mineral type of imagine concrete brick. Those services are really great for removing ozone without generating um, adverse uh, uh, without generating byproducts. Um, as are um, certain clay coatings used for as uh, paint alternatives. So um, that can be done. And um, but to, but and there have been uh, some studies um, at Texas and elsewhere that show that they can work for extended periods of time when deployed indoors. But we we don't certainly don't have enough probably enough data to show how well they work over very long periods of time, like you know decades. But yeah, that that would help. I was wondering, though, obviously, that uh, you wouldn't recommend in any way, shape, or form that we'd be adding any ozone into the uh, house. As you know, Never. there has been some well, thoughts about people. Uh, yeah, well, well, we'll get to that to us in a second. We're, we're dealing with the, the whole COVID-19 uh, pandemic, and, and, and many of the air cleaners that people are are uh, promoting, uh, at least at the very minimum, seem to generate some ozone from from their uh, from their as a byproduct of what they're doing, and I, I would imagine that the both of you gentlemen have some thoughts on you know about doing that and whether or not it makes sense to uh, to have air cleaners of that nature. Charlie, so you what's your what's first? your one exception though, Glenn? What is it that you have an well, exception? Well, I, I was going to so so the exception is where the benefit outweighs the risk. And that's that can that can encompass a pathogen um, removal. So, treating a uh, a building that has uh, been impacted by anthrax, um, mm -hmm. which happened as you recall, um, back twenty in years ago, 2000, twenty years ago, you know, with something like ozone that we know can kill potentially kill anthrax at a surface, that may be a benefit that far outweighs the risk of the of adding ozone. Um, perhaps they're at a one level down. The, the benefit of uh, temporary use of ozone to remove, um, let's say, smoke damage um, might be okay, but we've never really checked to see if the risk benefit matches there. Okay. And then, of course, there's this question of does introducing something anoxidant like ozone into the air we're breathing in a public space is the benefit of reducing COVID transmission, which we have not demonstrated. Um, uh, does that outweigh the risk of adding something we know is a public health risk, ozone? So, yeah, I think that has to be demonstrated first before we can say that. Yeah, but go ahead. So that was. Yeah. yeah. And on that particular issue, uh, trying to kill a virus or, or a bacteria with ozone, the concentrations that are necessary for ozone to be efficacious are much, much higher than the concentrations known to adversely affect humans. Uh, 
so you, you certainly don't want to use PPM concentrations in occupied settings. Uh, in the late 90s, I worked with the Department of Justice and the FTC in a lawsuit that the government brought against a specific manufacturer of ozone generators. And, uh, and that particular case lasted for more than a year. And it was really striking to hear um, some of the horror stories from people who use these ozone generators indoors and uh, use them sometimes in enclosed environments like bathrooms where uh, they might also be, be present doing something and, and getting concentrations that were in the hundreds of PPB or, or even PPM levels and, uh, and suffered consequences. I suspect that both Bob and Don, you've received calls or emails from people who for one reason or another used an ozone generator indoors and have then found that it's difficult to occupy the house. Uh, I occasionally get those kind of emails. And uh, that's not always going to happen. But even if it's only one time in 100,000 that you use an ozone generator indoors and then you find that you can't go back into the, uh, into the home, well, that's a, that's a pretty devastating consequence. Uh, so many of these products, um, the toxic, the, we don't know the toxicity right. of many of these products that are generated when ozone reacts with different unsaturated compounds indoors. Uh, it's, I, I think most people don't appreciate how limited the toxicity information is on oxidation products. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not being deliberately used in commerce. So there wonder, hasn't been the driver. Yes, Glenn? Sorry, guys. Gonna, Bob, did you want to? Yeah, I just wanted to interject this. One of the problems, though, is that there's there's tons of marketing that the general public is hit with. And even, you know, even in, in the commercial sector, in schools and everything, are hit with these marketing claims that are not necessarily uh, science-based. In fact, I would suggest that maybe most of them are not. And, uh, and and like you mentioned to that case back in the 90s, Charlie, um, and I was familiar with that. And, you know, not long after that company, you know, was slapped pretty hard by the FTC with a fine, but rebranded under a different product brand and came back out with the products again. Right. So it, it, they weren't stopped. They were it's, just they, they got a slap on the wrist. The, these I mean, we, we do not have enough oversight for this, these kinds of things. And giving it, it, it's it, it's a huge problem, especially when they can be very especially. When they're marketed for, for example, to put into a child's room who happens to have asthma, that actually happened, right? For yeah. some of these kinds of products, and this, this, it was, you know, absolutely immoral. Um, but what I was going to say was, you know, right now there are companies that that do ozonate buildings under certain circumstances where there's been some problem, like smoke damage or um, maybe mold. You know, what we don't have. Uh, and we desperately need to do is actually a before and after and during analysis, deep chemistry, deep biology of of these processes being done in real buildings to to determine what are the actual outcomes of those and uh, outcomes of doing the, these uh, remediations. That's one thing on the remediation side. So this is unoccupied remediation thing. Okay, well that's safe. Nobody's there when they're being oxidated. But Charlie's point is that there's a lingering effect of this chemistry that can last for a long time. You know, one example are these emissions of, of irritating compounds, right? That's a, a problem. 
but also the surfaces can be quite can be changed. They they and Charlie worked on this in at Bell. You, you can have uh, degradation of materials that uh, can be problematic itself, and also it can leave behind um, surfaces that are so oxidized that they themselves could be problematic. Um, and I haven't. We, we don't know. It needs to be uh, under. You know, what are the chemicals left behind that uh, could have contact? Uh, sort of a con could be a contact risk, right? So it's a experiment we're doing that is not being followed up on. What's an experiment in real time with with occupants that are not necessarily willing to be part of the experiment? Um, right. We we, uh, we are able to take uh, questions from the uh, live viewing audience, and we have a couple, so I'd like to uh, bring one in right now. Uh, Jim Rosenthal uh, asks: uh, Some schools are using ozone to disinfect the buildings at night. Is this useful? Uh, what byproducts could be created and dangerous to the students uh, when they enter in the morning? Charlie, you wanna? <laughs> okay, I'll I'll start, Glenn. And hello to Jim. He's uh, yeah, hi, Jim. Yeah, a, a terrific practitioner who who really understands indoor environments. And uh, an interesting question. Um, personally, I I would not advise that practice using ozone generators at night uh, for reasons Glenn just mentioned. You're going to create certain oxidation products that will linger long after you turn off the ozone generators. Um, the ones that are the oxidation products in the air, they'll be ventilated out of the building, but a significant fraction of the oxidation products will remain on surfaces and they'll actually re-evaporate from those surfaces into the air. So um, this ozone generation that you're doing overnight is going to leave chemicals on surfaces that can impact the air during the day when students are present. And this can, and, and they're likely to accumulate as you do this night after night after night, which, um, which could increase the resulting indoor concentrations. Um, and Glenn also mentioned the impact you're going to have on surfaces. You're, you're basically running an experiment there um, where you don't really know the outcome, and the outcome is likely to vary from school to school depending on the nature of the surfaces that are present, the surfaces that ozone reacts with, and uh, and occasionally I think you're going to run into issues doing that. Glenn? Yeah, I agree with everything, and also, you know, this gets back to this risk-benefit. Is there a real benefit to actually doing this? Do we see a um, significant reduction in transmission of disease by ozonating uh, school overnight? I've never seen a study that demonstrates that. And in, even if you killed everything on the surface every night, does that really help that much? Because the second children come in the next day, um, those surfaces become uh, uh, contaminated almost immediately with all the pathogens, all the viruses. And so the question becomes, um, does it matter? And it, I, I don't think it probably does. Um, there may be some slightly reduced risk, maybe, uh, but most pathogens don't, uh, to my understanding, and I'm not a virologist here, but most pathogens do not um, actually uh, live that long on surfaces anyway. So the the benefit is, is I don't see very, I see very little benefit of doing this. 
Well, that raises that whole question of, you know, all the surface sanitizing, sanitizing all, yeah. all the chemicals that have been sprayed and fogged into for spaces. Too, and, you know, yeah, for COVID, again, for the yeah. pandemic. Um, you know, is there a value when, you know, fomite, fomite transmission hasn't really been shown to, to be that much it's of a concern? Minimal. And, and, you're bring, and again, you're bringing more chemistry into the space. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's exactly. So if we're looking specifically at, you know, you know COVID, then this becomes more, it, it's even, that makes even less sense because it is almost entirely a respiratory transmission. And so if that's the case, the only time, you, you just have to prevent the transmission, right? The services are not the issue. Yeah. So we have another audience question too. Jack Springston asks, uh, what about other reactive oxygen species? Do we get the same type of reactions as we do with ozone? Good question. Charlie? <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll begin with the hydroxyl radical. Um, and the hydroxyl radical is simply OH, a very simple molecule with an unpaired electron uh, for those who are, are chemists. The hydroxyl radical is incredibly reactive. The hydroxyl radical also is indiscriminate. Ozone reacts with any chemical that reacts relatively quickly with organic compounds that have a double bond, C double bond C. In the case of hydroxyl radical, it doesn't care that much about a double bond. The hydroxyl radical will, re will react rapidly with chemicals that don't have double bonds. In outdoor air, the hydroxyl radical has been described as mother nature's vacuum cleaner because it's the hydroxyl radical that oxidizes organics in the air and makes them water soluble. So when it rains, they're taken out of the air. Indoors, the hydroxyl radical is doing that same oxidation, but we don't have rain to take the oxidized compounds out of the air. Uh, the hydroxyl radical is oxidizing benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene. It's oxidizing uh, linear alkanes like uh, hexane or decane. These are compounds that are not oxidized by ozone. Um, and, and you can, when ozone reacts with alkene, it actually makes hydroxyl radicals. And you can often have situations where the hydroxyl radical becomes a more important oxidant indoors than ozone when you generate ozone in the first place. Um, because the hydroxyl radical is an indiscriminate oxidant, um, I'd be very cautious deliberately introducing hydroxyl radicals to indoor environments. I just don't think it's a good idea. Glenn? Yeah, to follow up, it's it's indiscriminate, but also it is almost impossible to, to introduce something like the OH radical into an indoor environment in a way that actually mineralizes all the molecules of interest. It, it is, you will always end up with a mixture of chemicals in the air that is just more oxidized not a mixture that goes away. It just doesn't work that way, no matter what you hear in the advertisements. Um, there are other oxidants, um, nitrate radical, there's um, uh, oxidants associated with chlorine bleach. Um, uh, in general, um, yes, there are ox other oxidants uh, that can do other uh, related similar chemistry or um, uh, ending up with more oxidized species or sometimes adding, uh, altering a chemical so that it, it has maybe a chlorine attached to it or a nitrogen attached to it in different ways. So yes, but it, most of the, if you exclude sort of the 
the you know bleach and you know adding things. If you're not adding something to the environment, most of it is coming initially from ozone intruding into the building, and then going through a process of generating uh, oxidized products, including the OH radical, which then goes on to do more uh, indiscriminate chemistry. So, gentlemen, I'd, I'd like to perhaps talk, uh, have you talk a little bit about your work together on uh, clothing-mediated exposures to chemicals and particles. Yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, how you got together on that and uh, what's, what's, what's been some of the papers that you've written on that. Glenn, it's your turn to go first. Well, well actually, what I'd like Charlie to do is to talk about the initial pa the paper that initiated all of this, which was um, Charlie and Bill's paper on um, just recognizing dermal uptake of semi-volatile organic compounds in bars. Um, so the paper that Glenn's referring to was published in 2008. And we were looking at the redistribution of organics indoors, organics called semi-volatile organic compounds. These are larger molecules that tend to be present both in the air and on surfaces and on particles. And uh, the EPA had conducted an extensive study in Ohio and North Carolina in which they measured different organic compounds, semi-volatile organic compounds, in the air and also in skin wipes of children and adults. It was a terrific database. And John Little was the first to point out that if you looked at the concentration of dibutyl phthalate in the air in that database, and you looked at the concentration of dibutyl phthalate in hand wipes, there was a correlation between the concentration in air and the concentration in hand wipes. Uh, what Bill and I did was build on that observation by John Little. We, uh, we looked at the relationship for about 15 semi-volatile organic compounds, and we found that indeed there was this strong correlation between the concentration of the compound in the air and the concentration of the compound in the hand wipes for both the children and the adults. And we included a plot in the 2008 paper that showed that. And in a 2012 paper, we investigated that particular issue in greater theoretical detail. And uh, we asked ourselves, hey, if it's present in the skin oil, what steps are necessary for it, for it to get from the skin oil to the blood? Um, and we found that for certain chemicals with the right properties, it can go from the skin oil to the blood fairly quickly. But the, the initial observation was that chemicals that are present in the air are also present in our skin oil, some to a greater extent than others. So this these set of papers uh, inspired me is because I, at the time I was working on um, methamphetamine and meth contamination in homes and actually looking at contamination of clothing because I was considering this pathway from building contamination to children um, uh, taking in methamphetamine by mouthing fabrics. And it, uh, I realized how much clothing can absorb uh, chemicals uh, from those studies. And then I was looking at what Charlie and Bill were doing. I thought, well, you know what's going to happen here is that you have a really interesting interaction between air, clothing, skin, blood that is somewhat complex, but also something that we can understand by applying normal physical chemical principles in a way that we can make predictions. Do, does clothing protect you from uh, uh, chemicals in the air? Is clothing a source of chemicals? 
And so uh, I uh, approached Charlie at a conference over a beer and also Gabriel Becco and others and said, hey, you know, they were already going to do some experiments with um, uh, exposing uh, human subjects to an air that had elevated concentrations of certain uh, phthalate compounds. So can we put in a few clothing experiments so that we can see what this effect is? I, I predict it is this much. If it's this much, can we see it when in your experiments when you collect urine from uh, these human subjects? Will we see this penetration um, through the skin? Will we see it from clothing to the skin? Or will we see a protective effect of clothing that is very clean? And so um, with the folks at the Technical University of Denmark, uh, uh, I was able to join in on their experiments and uh, we were able to demonstrate that clothing had a big effect on this exposure pathway. Yeah. So we have a few other uh, questions that have been popping in from the audience, and I will uh, bring the next one up. So the WHO uh, 2005 uh, guideline includes uh, an eight-hour mean, uh, 100 uh, micrograms per cubic meter. Uh, does this still make sense, or are these uh, reasons to have a lower limit value? I assume that Jock is speaking of ozone in his question. Correct. Yes. Yes, I would say so. Yes. <laughs> and and he raises an important issue. In the case of ozone, especially in the case of ozone, we should not use an outdoor ozone standard to set an indoor ozone standard for ozone. Um, most of our most of the studies involving correlations between ozone and morbidity and mortality have been done using ozone monitored at an outdoor site and making correlations between ozone at an outdoor site and various adverse health effects, including death. And, um, but if you look carefully at our exposure to ozone, exposure is concentration times time in a microenvironment. Our indoor exposure to ozone tends to be similar to our outdoor exposure, even though the indoor ozone concentration is a, is a lot lower than the outdoor concentration. That's because ozone is reactive. As ozone is transported from outdoors to indoors, it reacts with indoor surfaces and with ourselves to generate these products we discussed. So ozone on a bad day might be 100 ppb outdoors, and it might be 15 or 20 ppb indoors but it's generated all these oxidation products. If you think about these correlations between outdoor ozone and adverse health effects using outdoor ozone, well, on the order of half of the exposure is indoors. And if it's 100 ppb outdoors, it might be 15 ppb indoors. If you've got a health standard for outdoors of 100 micrograms per cubic meter, which is roughly 50 ppb, uh, ozone outdoors. One could argue that the indoor standard should be something like 15% of that 50 ppb. Um, I recognize that this is complicated, but in the case of ozone, and to a lesser extent for PM 2.5, indoor ozone standards really should be lower than uh, outdoor standards uh, based on the epidemiology. Agreed. So Glenn, 
I was going to ask you a little bit about um, what you're doing in terms of uh, work on um, personal care products on skin chemistry and dermal uptake. Could you have a sure. few comments on that, please? Yeah, we're doing a, uh, quite a few things. Uh, on one side, uh, we've worked on with my student, Azeen Eftakari, on uh, really uh, trying to make uh, sort of more fundamental thermodynamic measurements that allow us to predict uh, transdermal uptake of chemicals present in personal care products through the skin. Um, and on the other side, um, and we're still working on this, we're looking at how personal care products affect the chemistry of um, skin oils with ozone. And so we published a paper last year on um, basically, it was basically looking at, at 20 human subjects and the yields of various chemicals from the skin. We're working on a paper right now that we're gonna submit soon in which we look at that same set of data, but where you add personal care products. And it turns out, um, because we've talked about this in, um, I, can, I can say that, that to some degree that, that uh, what we've seen is that personal care products can alter the chemistry. Um, it's altering the chemistry in two ways. One is that it does tend to, they can reduce the kinds of um, chemistry that Charlie described where ozone reacts with squalene to generate a variety of byproducts, um, uh, which potentially could be a good thing. If you design a personal care product the right way, you could actually reduce the amount of um, potentially uh, byproducts generated on the skin. But on the other side, the ozone often reacts with what you put in there to prevent that chemistry, creating some new chemicals and new byproducts. Um, so on the whole, that's the kind of thing we're working on. And I can't go into a great deal of detail right now, but the, one of the main goals here is to um, try to see how much personal care products influence the generation of something called squalene hydroperoxide, which is itself associated with skin inflammation. Acne, right? Acne, yeah. So we have another uh, audience question, uh, which I'll bring up right now. Um, this is... Uh... This is from Jim Rosenthal again. Uh, the manufacturers of air cleaners that use ozone, uh, OH, uh, hydroxyls, uh, hydrogen peroxide, and other reactive oxidizing uh, sources, I guess, claim that the reactions they create will end up uh, as water and carbon dioxide. What are the odds of that happening in real environments? Excellent question. <laughs> Very low. <laughs> Very, very, very low. What are the, the marketing claims though a lot, right? You know, that seems to be the most common claim. Yeah. It's like you know, I, you know, mountain fresh air, you know. Yeah, the the, the one, one way to look at this is well, the probability that reactions will take place is high. The react the probability that you will go all the way down this chain of oxidized compounds until you end up with CO2 is low in part because it actually gets harder to oxidize. Some, to some degree, it can be harder to oxidize things the farther they are down that chain. And so it's it's a bit like, oh, I don't know what that's called, sort of like a, you have to add more and more of the oxidant to get to where you want to go. And so you have to add so much of these oxidants to do that, you would make cause so many other problems that it's just not going to happen. It, it's a claim that we see repeatedly by manufacturers of oxidants, that um, that that company that was sued by the government back in the late 90s, you might remember a commercial they had, they called ozone generators thunderstorms in a box. 
that will clean your indoor air, take all the pollutants to carbon dioxide and water. And it's just not true. Yeah. And sadly, it's a, it's a lie. It's a lie. And it's a lie that continues to be repeated today. Yeah. Any advertisement now that claims that is yeah. lying. And I don't want a thunderstorm in my bedroom. That doesn't sound like a great <laughs> idea. I mean, I'm sorry. That doesn't sound like a really good idea anyway on face value. And, and Bob, you alluded to the fact that despite that suit, the company came back wearing different clothes. I mean, it really has been whack-a-mole over the last two decades. Uh, the government tries to shut down some of these companies and other companies pop up. And the advertising has become more targeted with the, uh, with the internet. And uh, I haven't seen recent numbers on production of ozone generators, but I suspect it's scarily high. Yeah, but it's also it? very cheap to make. They're very easy, to, yeah. really easy to make ozone. It's really cheap to make a device that does that. <laughs> Isn't it correct though that the FTC is really only going after them for false advertising claims? They're really not going after the technology and whether or not the technology has efficacy. Correct. I mean, it, it, isn't it? it it's, it's a nuance, but right. So that's that's how they're able to reinvent and come back and do the same thing over under a different brand, right? With, with some different marketing. To some extent, correct. And uh, to some extent, Bob, I just think that um, there's the numbers are too large. The the number of companies that are doing this are too large for the limited staff at the FTC and DOJ. It's a, yeah, as Charlie said, it's whack-a-mole. And the only way to really get at, um, you know, get at this, uh, unfortunately, is a much more top-down approach where we, um, uh, devices have to demonstrate that they don't produce ozone before they can even be marketed. And we just don't operate that way in the U.S. for the most part. Um, devices, uh, that uh, in the California, there's a process for vetting devices, um, but it's, uh, I don't know of other states that have a similar process. Yeah. Yeah, that, that California law is interesting. As I, as I recall it, uh, the device cannot add more than 50 ppb to ozone in the air where it's operated. And right, but it's designed in a way so that I believe the 50 ppb is a bit of a, it's, it's an odd number because it's not an emission rate, right? And so they, it's designed, the, the, the test is designed so that the actual emission rate is something less than, I think, four milligrams per hour, is my recollection. Don't call me on that, but it's such that if you actually do introduce it into a home, the air concentration in that home actually won't rise above a typical home. I don't know, more than maybe 10 ppb. I don't recall the number. But it's, it's very, very tricky to, to control these things. Yeah. Glenn has a nice paper on just this issue, as I recall. Right, Glenn? Yeah, I, I do have a very nice paper on this issue. <laughs> <laughs> With Richard Sean. Don, Don, you're muted. Is, is that better? Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, it depends on what you say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, basically, we're running low on time, and I wanted to give both uh, professors an opportunity to Tell us about what they're working on currently and what they expect to be working on in the near future. So I'll start with Charlie first. Um, with Bill Nazaroff, we've been revisiting um, what we know about indoor ozone. So we have a paper we recently submitted, a review article, um, that 
outlines what's been published regarding endorozone concentrations in residences and schools and offices. Um, and quite a bit has been done since this issue was last addressed in a major, major review about two decades ago. Um, a, we'll probably be doing a series of papers on this question. So we're currently working, uh, in addition to the submission I mentioned, we're currently working on a paper that examines in detail squalene and its role in indoor chemistry. Thanks to the Sloan Indoor Chemistry Program, we've learned a tremendous about, amount about ozone squalene chemistry indoors in the past five years. And we're trying to summarize what we've learned. In terms of um, experimental work at Technical University of Denmark, there have been a series of studies, I'll call them iCHEER2, that were conducted this spring with human subjects looking, looking uh, in detail at emissions from human volunteers, four human volunteers at a time in the chamber, and uh, studying the resulting chemistry. Glenn and I will both be back at DTU in a few weeks, and we'll be looking at that data and seeing what the data tells us. Glenn? Um, yeah, so in related work, um, uh, we, we continue to do some work on uh, this question of peroxides in skin. I'm, I find this very interesting, uh, and this uh, effect of the personal care products, clothing, that sort of thing on ozone chemistry and skin. Um, uh, we're also working on a data set that we've uh, uh, developed with human subjects, and um, we essentially had folks put on um, special pajamas, and uh, the, the special pajamas were just basically very, very, very clean clothing, and had them wear them uh, for a couple of days, and we collected urine from those folks, and we also collected urine from those folks before we had them wear them, and we want to, what we're looking at is how much do clothing protect you from the chemicals in their own home environment and reduce the concentration in their bodies? And the purpose of that work is, and hopefully leading up to some work we're going to do in the future, is, is um, looking at ways to uh, study transdermal uptake in children in a way that is uh, low impact on the children. So rather than exposing children to chemicals in a very directed way, which we shouldn't do because that's unethical, we can actually uh, put clothing on them that we know helps prevent them from getting up that uptake of clothing in their own environments and then uh, study how that the chemicals trans, uh, study basically how much is in their pee. <laughs> it's a very simple way to, to, to work with children. Yeah. Um, I want to emphasize a point that Glenn has clearly demonstrated in his research. And that's the fact that clean clothing tends to protect us from chemicals in the air. On the other hand, dirty clothing, contaminated clothing, can amplify the amount of a chemical that eventually gets into our blood, into our bodies. So clean clothing, good, protects us from chemicals in the air. Dirty clothing, bad, can accelerate the uh, rate at which yeah. the body takes up these chemicals. Yeah, the Glenn, easiest thing. If you, that? If, yeah, that's that's absolutely that's absolutely right. Yeah, just just that the the what people always ask me, what do I do? Well, I mean, the, the the easiest thing to do if you have the ability to do it is you just hang your clothing outside. Outside air is is relatively clean with respect to the chemicals that we are, care about for dermal uptake. 
And so that's if you can do it, great. And it's it seems to be reasonably useful to a point. You know, it, not, it's not going to work with all people. We had one last minute question come in. I'm I'm reluctant to put it up there because I don't think we'll get out. Uh, I'm going to do it because that's I can't stop myself, Don. This this is where you need to control me. Uh, this uh, yeah, this it's loaded. Does anyone want to speak to bipolar ionization and all the claims related with that? And unfortunately, we need a show for that. Yeah, Charlie, did you want to? I I just felt I had a, I had a flash it because it did sure. come through from the audience. We we don't have, to my knowledge, we don't have good studies regarding the chemistry that's being driven by bipolar ionization. There is a study that came out this past year that I do think is relevant to the question, though. It comes from uh, re researchers uh, uh, in China and uh, at Tsinghua University, and they used an ion generator in dorm rooms on campus, about 40 different dorm rooms, and they looked at the levels of PM 2.5, they looked at the levels of ions generated, and they looked at some biomarkers uh, that are indicative of oxidative damage. Uh, they found that indeed the ion generators did reduce the levels of PM 2.5 in the dorm rooms, but they increased the levels of the ions substantially. And in terms of the biomarkers, the biomarkers actually showed an adverse effect of the use of the ion generators. Uh, so I, I think that's the type of study that we need to see done for um, bipolar ionization approach. Agreed. The, the, for my reading of the literature and also of uh, private reports or reports that have been uh, come out from various private labs is that the effectiveness of ion generators, there is an effect, you know, adding ions to particles allows them uh, sort of tends to force, uh, push them to deposit more rapidly on your services. That's, that is a real effect. However, the effectiveness in a real environment is low unless you're putting a lot of ions in the air. And even then, it's still not great. In reality, you're far, far better off with a standalone HEPA filter. You know, it's just, it, it's simpler. It's, it, there's no unknowns there and, and for the most part, right? We, we, we're not adding chemistry. Right. We don't know what the chemistry is <laughs> and we don't and we already have evidence that it's maybe not good for people. So and if you're taking the them. particles out of the air with ionization, you're not removing them from the environment. You're plating them on surfaces. Is right. that correct? Yeah. They're, they're not really leaving. They're just sticking places. Yeah. But, it, 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 you know, playing devil's advocate, once they're on a surface, you know, they're basically they're not going to be inhaled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well. Thank you, both of you. I appreciate it. Um, I'm just going to offer my own congratulations and then turn it over to Bob to do the closeout. But this uh, particular session was sponsored uh, by our partner, uh, Iziac, um, and, um, and we at uh, IEQGA are very appreciative of the support of, uh, you know, Iziac in this, in this program. We'll have another presentation about a month from now, uh, and at that point, uh, we will be uh, having somebody representing one of the member organizations of uh, IEQGA uh, be our guest. So with that, I turn it over to Bob. Well, again, uh, Glenn, um, Charlie, thank you so very much for joining us. It was uh, this was a great session. I wish we had two hours, um, but you know, as, as always, we, we squeezed a couple of minutes extra in there. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it was a very informative presentation and. Uh, 
you know, on behalf of Don and uh, the program, uh, we'll sign off. We'll see you again in September. Uh, remember, you still can watch the replay of this show on the Healthy Indoors Online uh, Global Community and uh, also uh, catch the audio podcast, which will also be there later on today. So we'll see you next week uh, for the or excuse me, next next month for the Indoor Environment Global Research to Action Show. Mm-hmm.